Welcome to Cato Audio for May 2022. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Colleen Ronchik joins me on the Cato Daily Podcast to discuss the perils of Joe Biden's plans for universal pre-K. Neil McCluskey hosts Ashley Rogers Burner in a discussion on school choice and fights over public schooling. And we have a group discussion on the status of homeschooling in America in 2022. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. Twenty twenty two has been uh, a less impressive year, unfortunately, for school choice. But of course, uh, we're recording this in April, and some legislative sessions have uh, yet to wrap up their work for the year. Twenty twenty one was one of the greatest years ever for school choice uh, legislation. And to discuss uh, that and what the future might hold, uh, Jason Bedrick, a newly minted research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and Neil McCluskey, director of the Cato Institute's Center for Educational Freedom. So gentlemen, first of all, welcome. Um, And whoever wants to take it here, 2021 was an absolutely uh, blockbuster year for educational freedom. Yeah, 2021 was uh, colloquially known as the year of educational choice. Uh, You had 19 states pass 32 new or expanded educational choice programs. Uh, You had about 3.6 million additional students eligible to participate in some sort of either voucher, tax credit scholarship, or K-12 education savings account nationwide. Uh, And you had uh, close to 900,000 additional students actually funded, uh, able to participate if they so chose. Uh, obviously, we didn't get close to a million new students actually sign up, but there were those number of seats available. So yeah, 2021 was by far the largest year that the school choice movement has ever had. Uh, 2022, not so much. Uh, We've had a lot of headwinds this year. Uh, I would say by pre-2021 standards, still a decent year, but uh, not nearly the blockbuster year we had last year. Uh, Neil, and to the extent that 2022 has not been quite as impressive, and again, we're, it's just April, a lot of legislative sessions are wrapping up, but uh, some will continue on uh, through the end of the year. Uh, was 2021's success driven by, you know, pandemic and also not a really big election year? Well, those no doubt had a lot to do with it. Um, so uh, just to put in a little context, uh, Jason mentioned this. I think it was 2011 that the Wall Street Journal declared at the time was the year of school choice and 2021 eclipsed that. I don't know whether it's every decade we're going to see something like that. I think much more likely, though, is what you pointed to, which is that we had sort of a groundswell of parental uh, anger motivated by a lot of things. But first and foremost, it was COVID-19 and the way that public schools either responded or more often did not respond in satisfactory ways to the pandemic. In particular, uh, a lot of parents became frustrated, uh, not with the end of the 2021-22 school year, where most people were shocked by the pandemic. But when we go into the next school year and many public schools did not reopen in person, most private schools did reopen in person. And a lot of parents said, what are we paying for? Uh, 
if we can't get this in-person education we want. Uh, and then sort of added on to that very broad frustration, we started to see, uh, especially after the murder of George Floyd, we saw school districts start to do more uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion pronouncements and action. And that also frustrated many parents. And you threw that on top of it. And it was sort of a, a perfect storm to increase school choice in that year. And then the current school year, we started off with a lot of frustration over mask mandates or whether or not you could choose a mask. And that that also kept things sort of flowing along. And vaccine mandates on top of that. And, yeah, and vaccine mandates. I yeah, can't forget about those. Jason, in terms of the 2021 reforms, and we'll get to 2022 and sort of a, a vision for the future, your visions for the future, um, what were the highlights? I, don't know, I think the highlight, the biggest highlight was in West Virginia. Uh, West Virginia, for the first time, passed a universal education savings account it's called the Hope Scholarship. Uh, every single child who is either uh, entering kindergarten or first grade or who is switching out of a public school uh, is eligible to participate. Uh, and it was really, it was one of five states that passed a new education savings account. Uh, three of them publicly funded, two of them funded through tax credits. Uh, up until 2020, only five states had an education savings account policy. Uh, and you know the, the, the major difference between the ESA and the voucher, the voucher is like a coupon that you can use uh, you know, in a single place at a single time. Uh, so you can only use it to pay for private school tuition. The ESA really empowers families with a much greater degree of freedom and flexibility to customize their child's education. They can use it for tuition, but they can also, or instead of tuition, use it for tutoring, textbooks, homeschool curricula, online learning, special needs therapy, and you can save unused funds from year to year to save for future expenses up to and in some cases including college. Uh, so we doubled the number of states that had an ESA just in 2021. Uh, so I would say those are the big highlights. But but frankly, there were some, uh, you know, uh, Pennsylvania had the single largest expansion of its tax credit scholarship program in history uh, in any other year. They already have the second largest program in the country. In any other year, that would have been the highlight, uh, but it was practically eclipsed. Uh, you also had Florida and Indiana massively expand uh, their uh, voucher and tax credit scholarship programs. Uh, and uh, Indiana added an ESA. So there's just a, a ton of uh, advancement on the educational choice and freedom front last year. So what does that mean, uh, Neil, in terms of the average parent, in terms of uh, what students can expect uh, when it comes time to pick a school or some educational option? Well, so having more school choice is great, obviously, for parents. If you are one of the parents who is able to get the, the ESA or the voucher or a scholarship that's funded through a scholarship tax credit program. Um, but there is actually a lot of work that has to be done after these are passed. So Jason mentioned, look, there are a lot, a whole lot more students eligible. First, there's the funding issue. And we always have a difficulty of how do we let people know that these options are available to them. So it's great. We're going to have more school choice. Any expansion of school choice is good, but there's still a lot of work to do even in these states, and that is get the word out to people that these options are now available. So if you're in a state 
that has uh, expanded school choice or has new school choice, you know, especially if it's a scholarship granting organization, they often take on the role of informing parents, informing schools, because one way people find out is the local private school says, hey, you know, we have these uh, these scholarships available. So it's great. This is setting the groundwork for major expansion. But in very immediate terms, there's still a lot of work to do. Well, and in some cases, uh, Jason, at least in West Virginia and Kentucky and uh, maybe some other places I'm not thinking of, immediate court challenges uh, brought by what I would characterize as the usual suspects of the education establishment. Yeah, it is unfortunate. I mean, I would say at least in in recent years, uh, the school choice movement has had incredible success at court. Uh, and uh, most of these cases are being defended by our good friends over at the Institute for Justice, uh, which is fresh off their victory at the U.S. Supreme Court in Espinoza v. Montana. Uh, they are very confident uh, that they are going to win these challenges. And, and frankly, a number of them, particularly the Kentucky one, which is, is almost absurd on its face, uh, don't even seem to be filed to actually win so much as just to slow down the implementation of the program. Yeah, that's actually a major strategy by school choice opponents is when something gets passed, knowing that the toughest part for a new program is getting the word out, getting people to understand they have choices. You throw as much sand in the gears as you can so that this thing can never really get off the ground and you struggle for years. And then you can say, see, nobody even wants it. Why would we have school choice? So this is all a part of the strategy. And it's, you know, uh, Jason actually used this term with me. It's like we're sort of in the Empire Strikes Back phase now after this big year of school choice. And this is part of it. It's always been part of it is as soon as something gets passed, jam it up in court, say people don't want it because they're not using it. Look, say that it's, uh, you know, sort of it, it's it, it's not making any progress. It's just sort of a waste. Why do we even have this? And the opponents know that they're the ones in many cases making it so hard to act on that program. Well, anyone who listens to to the Cater Daily podcast will hear me mention literally on every episode that I live in central Kentucky and have been watching a lot of this play out. So it's been interesting to watch the uh, education savings account uh, program that was adopted in Kentucky in 2021, the court challenge. Um, and it almost seems like the program has been, the, the embattled program has entirely been forgotten by uh, the press, despite the fact that, uh, as Jason, as you said, our friends at the Institute for Justice are very confident that uh, they will prevail in that case. In 2022, um, and j just from my own experience, 2022 was not so much focused on this broad, robust educational freedom that an, an ESA um, would enable, but more charter schools, more uh, focus on other kinds of regulation uh, in public schools. So going so far as to set curriculum and to decide who can play sports and things like that in, in public schools. But what have we seen so far, it, Jason, in 2022 uh, it, with respect to educational freedom versus these other kinds of restrictions on curriculum and other uh, aspects of education? 
Sure. Well, I think first it's worth noting that uh, in an election year, usually it is a smaller year historically for school choice. Uh, some state legislatures like Texas are, are not even in session. Uh, some legislative sessions are considerably shorter than they are usually. And frankly, uh, legislators don't like to do anything big in an election year uh, very often. Uh, so uh, nevertheless, we still had pretty high hopes uh, this year coming off last year. You had a lot of legislators who said, actually, we do want to do something big in an election year this year. Uh, so I would say, uh, first, I'll start with the disappointments. Uh, we uh, There was a, a universal uh, education savings account that, that would have rivaled West Virginia's uh, that was proposed in uh, Oklahoma. Uh, it had the, it was sponsored by uh, the Senate President Greg Treat, had the strong support of Governor Kevin Stitt. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the Speaker of the House was able to kill it. Uh, actually went over to the Senate, lobbied very hard. Uh, we heard even uh, may have been threatening legislators, other legislative priorities if they sent it over to his chamber, and it failed by two votes in the state Senate. The governor and the Senate president uh, have said that the fight is not over, so they may still get something through some sort of a, you know education omnibus bill or a budget deal, uh, but the universal ESA bill is dead. Uh, also, you know, in, in Idaho, Idaho, in Utah, there were efforts to pass ESAs that uh, ran into major headwinds and, and ultimately failed, uh, likewise in Georgia. Uh, but uh, in Iowa and South Carolina, there are still ESA bills that are live and, and have lots of support, uh, including from the governors. Uh, and uh, even in Georgia, they passed uh, a, a sizable, actually the largest expansion of their tax credit scholarship in, in the in the program's history. Uh, New Hampshire, there is a, a major expansion to the state's tax credit scholarship uh, going through has already cleared one chamber. By the time this is published, uh, some of these actually may have been signed into law. So there's still uh, quite a bit of progress this year. So uh, disappointing compared to last year, disappointing even compared to our hopes for this year. But frankly, by pre-2021 standards, this is a really, really good year for educational choice. Neil? Yeah, I think we need to, uh, and this was in your question, look carefully uh, about a lot of the rhetoric we see coming from policymakers about empowering parents and listening to parents. Uh, I think when you do school choice, your assumption is often, well, that means they want more school choice. Um, but that isn't always the case. And and there seems to be some division now among, well, does empowering parents mean more school choice, actually giving them control of the money and hence power? Or does it mean sort of requiring school districts to listen to parents? And if that is the framing, which parents are they supposed to listen to? So uh, Governor of Virginia, Glenn Youngkin, uh, most people think education was a very important issue that led him to sort of a surprise victory um, because uh, his opponent had said basically, well, you know, maybe we shouldn't listen to parents. They shouldn't make decisions. And that seemed to be a turning, turning point. Uh, and, and Youngkin talked about, you know, we're going to listen to parents. Parents need to have power. But 
He had a very anemic school choice proposal, basically uh, about uh, 20, not even really charter schools or some sort of amalgamation uh, innovation schools, he calls them. No talk about private school choice. Uh, his uh, new uh, superintendent of public instruction, uh, I think that's who it was, there two in that level. I can't remember which one I was listening to, but said basically they're not going to pursue private school choice right now because they're focused on, you know, sort of controlling the schools from the state. But that's all in the name of parent empowerment. So there may be a lot of talk about, and parents' bills of rights is something we've seen in Congress, we've seen in many states, but they're not always about school choice. So a lot, some of this energy we see is going toward trying to control the system as is rather than putting that money in the hands of parents. So in the case of Oklahoma, Jason, you're mentioning the the House Speaker being broadly opposed to uh, this robust form of educational freedom that the, the uh, other lawmakers wanted to adopt. Um, it's probably worth mentioning he's a Republican. Yes, that's correct. Uh, you know, it, it, the support and opposition to school choice does not break down neatly along partisan lines. Uh, and in a number of red states, the the biggest opponents uh, or the most influential opponents aren't even the teachers unions. Uh, you know, people in the school choice movement, Republicans, they're they're comfortable uh, going after the teachers unions and picking a fight with them. Uh, or really, they don't have to pick a fight. The unions are fighting. Uh, but often the most powerful opposition comes from the superintendents. Uh, they're often much quieter. They work behind the scenes. Uh, they call the, you know, especially rural legislators into their office and tell them, you know, you need to oppose the school choice bill. And very often the public schools are the single largest employer in small towns. Uh, so they do wield a, a great deal of influence. Uh, and so we have seen opposition from uh, particularly rural Republicans, although I think that's also changing. We've seen a number of red states uh, in the last year that have adopted school choice policies. Uh, I think the real test is going to be uh, what happens in the 2022 elections. Uh, we often hear that, uh, oh, well, if you go too big on school choice, the voters don't like it uh, and they're going to come after you and they're going to replace you. Well, if we see states like West Virginia and Indiana and Florida that went really big on educational choice last year, uh, if the legislators who voted for school choice hold on to their seats, I think that's going to send a message to legislators across the country uh, that actually school choice is popular with the voters. Uh, and I think then 2023 has the potential to be a much bigger year for educational choice. Neil? Well, I mean, I think that that's right. What's going to be the big question is, you know, what happens when the effects of COVID uh, are no longer immediate? You know, we're no longer worrying, well, what is my school district about to do with uh, masking or whether they may even lock down and not allow in-person education? So, you know, when it's not immediate and when it starts to fade from memory. So a lot of people get very angry at the moment, which is understandable. What When things kind of return to what was normal, they're not going to always remember how upset and frustrated they were. And so are we going to see that choice is still something that has a lot of uh, power after that? 
I think we will. And I think we will because it's very clear that at least conservative parents are very angry for reasons that go far beyond COVID. And as long as it is clear that we have a system that frustrates and sometimes enrages a large percentage of the population, we're going to have that constant reminder that one size does not fit all, no matter how much we may say it should or it does. And that is going to be a constant opening to say, look, you need to have options for your kids. Almost, hopefully, as powerful is when we see that sort of activism to control school districts, and that can be at the district level or at the state level on all districts, we'll start to see progressives who say, look, I don't like what is happening to the schools that I used to think I'd always control. I think I need school choice, too. I hope that progressives think they there should be school choice because we all value freedom. But if not, I hope they recognize they need it as a defense and that we can start to get this group that we've always sort of thought isn't going to be on our side to start supporting school choice. And uh, by the way, a lot of the people that they say they speak for and care about the most, in particular, low-income people, sometimes racial minorities, have very high demand for school choice. They want it, but they tend or at least that tends to get drowned out by lots of other progressive things. And because the teachers unions and administrator associations and other organized groups have a lot of power within progressive circles. So what what about school choice as one of a set of competing legislative priorities for legislatures with respect to education? Because there have been a lot of states this year in 2022 that have, I don't know if and Jay, you guys can tell me whether they've continued to lean into school choice or whether they've focused more on the kinds of potentially racially divisive issues like CRT or other divisive issues, whatever curriculum uh, standards. I know in my in my state of Kentucky, there was a a notable push to put specific pieces of content into curriculum for students. There were uh, what they so called don't don't say gay bill in Florida uh, and on other states. Uh, issues related to whether or not young trans kids could play this sport or or that sport. So where does school choice rank? In, in priorities for people who otherwise would be strong school choice proponents or educational freedom proponents. Jason? I think that it varies by state, certainly. Um, but I think the main thing is that school choice solves a lot of these issues. Uh, and ideally, uh, look, Neil's the one who's been uh, doing great work for many, many years, pointing out that so long as you've got a system of schools that are run by the government, uh, there is by necessity going to be conflict uh, between neighbors and citizens who have different ideas of what education should look like, who have differing values that all want those values expressed in the school that they send their children to. And so long as the government is involved in the provision of schooling, uh, there is going to be these fights over curriculum. Uh, there's going to be fights over a wide variety of things that take place in the school or don't take place in the school. Uh, and 
the way to solve that is to provide families with robust choice options so that they can choose the school or other learning environment that aligns with their values and provides their children with the education that they need. Uh, I don't see these fights in the public school system abating so long as we don't have robust choice options as well. Yeah, I think what we're seeing now is there's much more uh, force and and width behind trying to control what the public schools teach. And that's actually totally logical. So there, I think about 620,000 kids going to private schools using school choice programs right now. Uh, you're talking, I think it's, oh, it's around 60 million almost uh, school age kids in the United States. Um, and so clear, and they're about 5.7 or so private school kids. So clearly, the vast majority of people are in public schools. Most of them, even with the expansion of choice, don't have a realistic choice. And so naturally, their only option is to try and control the schools they're assigned to through politics. What I would like to see is a recognition that that's what has to happen now, but that cannot be the end goal. We can't be satisfied when my group now controls my district or my group controls the state. What we always have to be saying is that may be what's required in the short term. The long term has to be freedom for everybody to choose what they think is best. And so have those fights. They're inevitable over the don't say gay bill and, and lots of other values and identity-based conflicts over what public schools will do, but always say this is not the ultimate answer. The answer's got to be freedom for everyone. I think we're going to end it there. Jason Bedrick, the newly minted research fellow at the Heritage Foundation, and Neil McCluskey, director of the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. You can continue to follow in podcast text and uh, other formats, our work on educational freedom and advancing that goal uh, in the years ahead at Cato.org. The Biden administration's push for universal pre-K will have side effects on the current market for pre-K services. Colleen Hronchik at the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom detailed her new paper on the topic on the Cato Daily Podcast. What experience do states have with a universal, a state-run universal pre-kindergarten program? A lot of states have some form of state funding for preschool. Only four have universal preschool for four-year-olds, and that would be Florida, Oklahoma, Vermont, and West Virginia. And then a lot of other states have just varying degrees of them. None have it for three-year-olds. Okay, so what is what's been the experience? It's really it's mixed results, and it's something that's hard to study because to really get a good understanding, you need to have randomized controlled study. So you would have to have some kids that got in, and some who tried and didn't. So it's just it's a hard thing to study. Um, there was Tennessee's program isn't quite universal, but it is very widespread. And there was a study that came out from Tennessee from Vanderbilt University researchers just earlier this year on Tennessee's program, which is not quite universal, but pretty widespread. And the program meets nine out of ten of the benchmarks set by the National Institute for Early edu Early Education Research. And the program found 
actually harmful impacts from the pre-K program in Tennessee. And that was both in academics and behavioral when they were looking at uh, randomized kids who had participated looking through sixth grade. So a few years ago, they looked at the kids in third grade, found some negative impacts. And then this year, they released the study through sixth grade and found those those negative impacts persisted. So not just no effect, which is what we're used to hearing about uh, very early childhood interventions is that the, whatever the whatever the benefits are that we see tend to dissipate. At least that's what I hear from people like Neil McCluskey. Um, but actual negative effects that appear to have persisted. Exactly. Yes. Sometimes you'll find, and I think even this study found, coming out of the pre-K program, the kids were reading a little bit better than kids that hadn't done it at all, you know, heading into kindergarten. But they didn't just have fade out. They had actual negative impacts. And it wasn't just academics. It was also behavioral. So it was very, very shocking to a lot of people, including the researchers themselves. They went back and re-ran their numbers every way they could trying to explain this. And they kept coming up with the same results. People are sort of familiar with Head Start, and uh, I don't know uh, about the benefits or costs related to that program. What is Joe Biden proposing? So President Biden's proposal has a whole host of mandates. It requires 1,020 hours of instructional time per year. It requires teachers to have an elementary education degree and be certified. It has their salaries matched up with the public school salaries. It requires, um, it doesn't give any religious exemptions for some of the different programs that would be for Head Start regulations and for Title IX regulations. So there's a lot of mandates that are involved in this, in his legislation. All right. So one of the things you were talking about uh, in your paper was that the extent to which this would be an opt-in program by states it would be fairly rigid and and the requirements of the plan sort of, you know, demand that any uh, universal pre-K that was adopted by a state would have in order to qualify for federal funds would have to, you know, live and die by those requirements. Exactly. There's not a single state program right now that would qualify under these requirements. And none have, that's for even the ones that have the four-year-old programs, there's not a single state that has universal preschool for three-year-olds at all. So it's a massive expansion. All right. And and what evidence is there that this is what parents want? And, and also give us a sense of what the landscape for pre-K looks like right now. Right now, it's a very diverse landscape. There are part-time programs. There are full-time programs. There are home-based, center-based, secular, religious. It's you know, whatever you want pretty much is out there. And that's what parents seem to want. There's a wide variety in what parents want. And it's it's split up pretty evenly, you know, maybe 10 to 14 percent preferring any of those types of options. What Biden's plan would do is really be a death knell for all of those other programs because they wouldn't meet his requirements. And so the, there's not not much evidence then that parents want this kind of program? There's no evidence. They'll look and say, oh, parents support universal preschool, but the polls never get into the details of what that means. And parents don't 
10 to 1, maybe 14% in polls that I've seen, and that was just in the last couple of years, where they want a secular center-based program. And that's the kind that's most likely to survive the regulations of the Biden plan. Given some of the evidence that you've laid out here, uh, if parents like the idea of universal pre-K, but uh, seem to like what options are available now, who benefits? Frankly, it seems like teachers unions are the primary beneficiaries of this because while it doesn't mandate that they that the preschool teachers join the teachers union, it does mandate that they have the same certifications and degrees and match the salary requirements of the local school districts. So you can see down the road where that's likely to be a, a big push is to get them unionized. Colleen Ronchik is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Her new paper is entitled Universal Preschool Lawmakers Should Approach with Caution. Public schooling by forcing people with diverse values and needs to fund a single system of government schools inevitably produces conflict, and there has been no lack of conflict over education policies of various kinds in the past two years. At a recent Cato event, Neil McCluskey spoke with Ashley Rogers-Burner, director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. And so just a brief word about educational pluralism and what it means and what it does and why it's important. And then a little bit about the research. So education policy is a complicated business. I have never made education policy, but I've studied it and I work for help run an education policy institute. And I don't I just want to say it up front that I don't think any democratic school system perfectly solves the goals of education, which is, you know, social mobility, academic achievement, and citizenship formation in a democracy. So nobody gets it totally and completely right. But the reason why I think it's important to look at other models around the world and to look at our own history, as Charlie does in his book about the myth of the common school, is because when we're raised in one country, we just accept and adapt the frameworks for doing business that we're born into. So in our country, for a hundred years, we've had this extreme binary of public schools and private schools, and now there's charter schools, which are also public schools, but somewhere you know privately managed at times by nonprofits. But we have this binary of public schools means one thing, the district school and private schools are everything else. And we know that it's inequitable because we know that well-off families can move to a quote, better school district or to enroll their kids in private school and low-income families don't have that ability. So this binary breaks down very quickly when we start to ask about equity. But what's really important here is even the language of school choice is essentially asking for an exception to the norm of one provider, AKA the district school. Now that's a long history to how we got there, but it's been that way for a hundred years. And when we look around the world at how democracies frame their educational systems, it's entirely different. And that's the description that Charlie and I have worked on that Charlie led called educational pluralism. 
Now, educational pluralism is simply a different way to structure democratic education. And there are two key pieces of it that I just want to play out a little bit. The first is about the structure, and the second is about the content. And they're both very important for social cohesion and also for parental rights. So the structure, educational pluralism assumes that schooling cannot be neutral with respect to values. There's no way to select a textbook or hire people or attract families or even create a disciplinary code without drawing on some kind of normative values. It's impossible to design education to be neutral. So having accepted that, the next step is simply to fund a variety of institutions. So the Netherlands, um, one of our favorite examples, 36 different kinds of schools on equal footing. Montessori, Jewish Orthodox, uh, Jewish Reform, uh, Catholic, Islamic, secular, 30% of the kids go to what we would consider district schools. This is the norm around the world. Indonesia, Israel, Sweden, Belgium, France, Australia, they all have different models. The funding structure is different, but the premise is the same. We fund a variety of schools. This is not necessarily considered school choice. This is by design, this is pluralism. So that's the structure. The content is equally important. The content of instruction, what are we actually delivering for kids? Here, the premise is different. It is that unlike other choices we make, decisions that we make, education is not just about the individual. It isn't just an individual good, why not? because it matters to me that your child knows in our country, the three branches of government. It matters to you that my children know how to read and function in adult society, right? We're all in this together. It is a, there's a common good principle here. And that is why the most successful pluralistic countries have curricular frameworks and guidelines that all kids have to study. And so, you know, I just served on a board um, panel for Alberta, Alberta, Canada, for example. They fund homeschooling, they fund Inuit schools, they have charter schools, they have Catholic schools, but yet the common body of knowledge is, is meant to be common across all of them. And they have a common assessment and assessments are really important. Assessments that are knowledge based not just the kinds of assessments we have in this country that are skills oriented. It is about, you know, essentially a kind of a, a liberal approach, liberal arts education. And this works very, very well for actually for equity. The OECD's research shows how important a knowledge building curriculum is. So I'm just going to stop for a second on those two things. So there's the structure that is diverse and the content that is not lockstep, but it's much more similar. The Ministry of Education provides curricular frameworks. So you do get very strange situations, as in the Netherlands, and I'll just give my favorite example. The Netherlands and the UK both fund creationist schools. And now that would set the hair on fire of many Americans. They fund creationist schools. However, kids in those schools also have to demonstrate mastery of evolutionary theory as a theory. So that's considered part of what you need to know to navigate adult life. You don't have to believe it's true, but you have to demonstrate 
competence in it. So the school's values and how they interpret content is distinctive, but the content is also very uh, relatively stable. And there are lots of nuances and lots of lots of variations here, but but that's that's the in my in my interpret interpretation of the data, that's the best of both worlds. Why? Because you have a strong school culture, the ethos of the school, which we know makes a material difference in student outcomes for the better. There's a strong, stable school culture. This is we see this across all countries, and there's a academically robust curriculum. Now, I don't want to pretend that this is easy in the United States. Both of these things, the plural structure and a robust knowledge rich curriculum are countercultural to some extent. These happen on two different historical trajectories and I'm happy to talk about them. Our Institute at Hopkins works on both. We work a lot on the content of education and helping all schools school sector agnostic, right? Helping district schools, state, you know, district schools, charter schools, and private schools develop more robust instructional frameworks and so on. But they're both difficult moves and they push against one or the other side of the political spectrum. So there are, there's a strong commitment by some folks in our country that only the district can deliver public education. Only the district is legitimate. We have to push against that and say, well, no, most democracies, that's not the case. And it used not to be the case with us. Um, on the other hand, we have many school choice advocates who want to leave the quality measures completely to the schools and the parents. And I, from my perspective, that's highly risky. There's not a lot of evidence that, that it, it leads inevitably to a high quality. So both of these moves are countercultural, but together, I think they really have worked well for families all around the world. It's very much the norm. And, and it's quite fun to be in conversations in the United States in which one can say, well, I think we need more of what the Netherlands has. Ashley Rogers-Burner is director of the Institute for Education Policy at Johns Hopkins University. Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Institute Center for Educational Freedom. Homeschooling has increased dramatically since the start of the pandemic, so how's it going? Cato's Colleen Ronchik assembled a panel to discuss the status of homeschooling, including Eric Wern of Kennesaw State University, Amber Brown, founder of Barefoot University, and Bernita Bradley, founder of Engaged Detroit. We have a question about unschooling, if anyone has any experience with unschooling, which is what this anonymous questioner did. And um, Amber, you look like you're smiling, so maybe we'll go to you first. Yeah, um, so that's kind of pretty much the approach that my family takes. I actually have four kids. Um, all of them have been homeschooled at some point. Uh, my oldest just graduated this year, and then I have a junior in um, our high school the high school right down the street, um, our county high school. And then my younger two are homeschooled. But we, when we're homeschooling, um, I found that it's just easier on me and way easier on my kids if we kind of follow an unschooling approach. So um, what does that mean? I think it could be different for every family. And there's 
probably so many different variations of unschooling, but for my family, um, I follow my child's lead. It's kind of what we do at Barefoot. Uh, if my kids are interested in like right now, um, I have a daughter who she's eight and a half and she has just kind of become fascinated with fairies. So we're learning like all about fairies, but you know, um, that doesn't mean she's not learning math or anything else. We just use fairies as kind of the topic to engage in all these other subjects. Um, and we, of course, like grocery shop together and cook together and I will give her money whenever I'm shopping and I'm like, okay, we need to get five meals for dinner. Like, how can we do that with this amount of money? And um, so we just kind of do life together, I guess is the easiest way to say it. And um, they learn that way. I, I don't enjoy sitting down. We read a ton with each other. Um, we look up stuff if they're interested. We'll get a book or watch a video or stuff like that. Um, she really likes history, so we watch like a lot of history videos and read books about that kind of stuff. And she, of course, enjoys science and nature, so we're always like looking up different topics. But it's just kind of what she's interested in. I don't enjoy sitting down and being like, okay, we have like 18 worksheets that we have to do today, and we're gonna get it done in the next three hours. Like that wouldn't work for me. It it wouldn't work for my kids. Um, she actually, the eight-year-old I was just talking about, she actually does enjoy worksheets, and so she does them. Um, but my others don't always enjoy that kind of book work, so uh, we don't do it. And they are still learning, and they are all smart. Um, my 18-year-old is getting ready to start college. Actually, my both of my teenagers, uh, when they were homeschooling, in high school, we just enrolled them in dual credit college classes, and uh, I just let them pick, like, okay, what do y'all want to do? And they both did, you know, started with, like, Algebra 101 and College English 101, and um, they started at 15, and they started doing college classes under dual enrollment, and, um, but it was unschooling still because they're making a choice about their education. Um, so I let them choose. I let them decide what they want to learn about, how they want to learn it, like the easiest way for them to learn it, because we all learn things so differently. Um, and they're motivated because they're teenagers and they want to get out of my house and they they want to start a life and they have these plans. And so they're like, okay, to do this, I need to do these things. And um, I let them, you know, we guide them and facilitate, of course. Um, but they are more motivated to learn some of those skills that they wouldn't have wanted to learn when they were 13 or 14 sitting behind a desk for six or seven hours. Um, they're like, okay, I have to learn algebra now, so here I go. And um, it's funny how quickly you can learn something when you're motivated to learn it or when you know there's a need to learn it, whether than just, you know, rather than being forced to learn it on somebody else's time schedule. So that's kind of what unschooling looks like in our family. I'm sure there's tons of different ways and models you could follow, but that's what we do. I always say we quasi unschool because um, I make them do like math usually, <laughs> but for a lot of subjects, it is you know very similar to what you're saying in the dual enrollment, hugely helpful. I totally agree with that. Um, Erica, Bernita, I do mean, you guys have anything you want to chime in on that? Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say like, I know math is always somebody's like biggest concern when you talk about unschooling. I'll just tell you that my eight-year-old knows all of her times tables. She's doing like really difficult um, division and she knows like basic algebra, she's done all of that on her own just from reading about math in a book series that she likes. Um, it's called Life of Fred. It's novel-based, um, but he teaches. It's written by like a math professor somewhere, and um, she's done that all on her own, basically. I mean, I help her, and when she has questions and she's like, hey, how do you do this? Like, we'll talk about it. 
Um, but she's still learning math and it's not, there's no curriculum. Um, I love to jump in there. Uh, so yeah, my daughter, my daughter, same scenario, right? Like uh, my, my daughter was an unschooled slash hybrid model. Like every household is different. I really want people to note that like every, and every child is different. <laughs> I mean, it is so, if you have more than one child in your household, you may have one child who's like, look, I wanna be in this hybrid model because I wanna play sports in school. And I really want to like really be around these students, my friends in school, right? But I wanna be homeschooled. You might have one child who's like, like yeah, I'm good with being this person who explore and figure out my own world. And then you might have one other child who's like, well, I really want to take like the the arts and sciences and things like that. And I want to do projects all the time. And I want to have a, a club that I'm a part of to present those to. So my daughter was, I'll never forget, trying to make her stick to her 12th grade transcript that she originally made with her school. And I was like, you need to actually take your chemistry. Like you have to, in order to graduate, like to prove that you've done it, like you got to take chemistry. And we went through this challenge, blah, 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 for a few days. And then she wouldn't do it. So I shut down on her. I was like, well, we're not talking about our family vacation till you tell me you've signed up for your chemistry class. And I was so proud about it. And she kind of shut down on me. And I was like, yeah, but I'm standing up against you. Right. And uh, talk to my coach. And literally, I got coached through this process too, right? And so I'm talking to my coach and I'm bragging to her about, not bragging, but just telling her how our process is going, right? And she looked at me and she said, so why did you not talk to her about the vacation? Because she didn't do what you wanted her to do academically? And she said, you do know that's the same way that schools have treated children when they've been punitive on education for black children. And I was like, whoa, like, wait, like it was a reality check for me as a mom, right? She said, well, why couldn't you just go to her and ask her what else she would have wanted to do? And so it made me step back. I went back to my daughter and I was like, okay, so what would you want to do outside of chemistry? You know, what, what else would you want to do? She said, well, actually, I want to take forensic science. And I'm sitting up there like, chemistry, forensic science, right? Like, tell me which one is harder. Why don't you just want to take chemistry? And she was like, this is what I want to do, right? She's always been an explorer. She's always been a research person. So she's like, I want to take forensic science. She took it without flying, passed without, with flying colors and I was mesmerized by how, again, my daughter brung the work to me and told me about the things she learned and would have conversations with me about what she was learning on her own pace and how well it was going. Whereas before it was like pulling teeth when it came down to classes that were that were hard for her. And so that unschooled model is just allowing your child to explore. And again, like we find math in all type of things. We find things like math in baking. We find it in helping your children, uh, telling your children to help you balance the books or pay the bills, 
or like she said, going grocery shopping. But a lot of times we don't see that as education. Going to the laundromat, right? Like if you're a parent who has to go to the laundromat, go to the laundromat with them sometimes so that they have that experience. Even if you have a, um, a washer and dryer at home, just giving them that experience, giving them the quarters, right? Like, look, what do we do when we're here? How much soap do you put in here? Well, can you measure this, right? Those are models of learning that school has gotten so far away from that it doesn't even relate to real life. And I believe unschool does more of that. It relates to real life and how children will have to go throughout their like adult years actually learning. Okay, another question we have here is about learning pods, which we've talked about hybrid and co-op. This is a little bit different. And so this question, this is Michael King. I'm not sure what platform he's on, but he says, we're encouraging churches to start learning pods with coaches that meet upwards of five days a week. All students register as homeschoolers and the church just uses the building. Not a traditional school model, but many function in a similar way. Are you seeing this movement in other states? Anyone want to just jump in on that one? Yeah, I'll go there. Um, yeah, so home, uh, if you look up uh, the Vela Fund, the Vela Fund um, actually funded a lot of homeschool pods. And there's a lot of programs that are funding homeschool pods. There are some phenomenal programs going on. Like we have Surfscape, surf uh, I believe they're in California, and they run like a surfing homeschool pod. Like who would have thought like surfing with homeschooling, right? But the same thing with the forest schools, right? So they're everywhere. And what it is, is groups of parents just coming together saying, we got to do something around education or churches or or local um local, whatever, local community uh, networks that are coming together saying, how do we educate children and make sure they have the tools and the resources and a place that's safe to come and learn, especially during this pandemic. I believe that's going to continue. A lot of schools are even willing to partner with programs like that now. Here in Michigan, we had our early childhood programs became learning pods for families. Um, some of those early childhood programs that generally would take children up to about seven or eight, um, they took children up to like 13 during the pandemic, right? And they actually made spaces in their building for these young kids to come here and have computers through the day, learn and touch bases with, you know, their staff to make sure that they were on point and they did it for the sake of families who had to go to work. And if anyone wanted to look into the Vela Ed Fund that Bernita mentioned, it's Vela, V-E-L-A, edfund.org. And they do have some grant applications opening up soon. So um, if you're interested, check them out soon. And Eric or Amber, did you have anything to say about the learning pod type of a model? I mean, I'll say, um, I think I saw a few of these start up in my area. Um, because of COVID, because of school shutdowns. Um, but I, th I think uh, that the shutdown kind of gave them, the parents gave, the, it gave parents the impetus to kind of jump into these pods. Um, what's keeping them there though, is some of these uh, fights over curriculum though, right? So that's been an interesting change that I've seen, right? As the schools come back, some people are staying, not because of COVID, but because they don't want to fight over curriculum in their schools anymore. Yes, so definitely seeing that. Okay, oh, this is a good question. Somebody anonymous is asking about activities and sports. So 
So I'll speak for myself. My kids have done in my state, they can participate in public school sports. So some of my kids have done that. And also we happen to live in an area that has uh, pretty decent homeschool sports. So they've done um, volleyball, archery, and uh, basketball through the homeschool leagues. And then outside of sports, our biggest activity is one that I would strongly encourage anyone to look into because it's been great for my kids. And it's competitive speech and debate. And the league that we are in is called NCFCA. So it's ncfca.org. And it's just, um, we've found it to be, it just, it benefits every aspect of their life. They get the public speaking, they get research, they get critical thinking, because especially with debate, you're asking each other questions, you're answering on the spot. Um, there's a lot of limited prep speeches where you get a question and you have to, you have, you know, a couple minutes to figure out your answer, then you have to just give a speech. So um, those are the things that, that we have done. And does anyone else want to chime in on what activities and sports they've used as homeschoolers? Amber, maybe do you want to go first? Because um, I think you were the least yeah. recent to talk. Yeah. Um between all four of my kids, I think we've done everything. <laughs> um, right now we're in violin, swimming, uh, martial arts. Uh, my oldest son did cross country. My daughter did, uh, she volunteered at teen court for a number of years. She wanted to be a lawyer for a while. So we did that. Um, we've done soccer and baseball and cheerleading. I have a daughter, my oldest is the cheerleader and um, gymnastics. And like, seriously, you name it, we've done it. Uh, American Heritage Girls, Life of, Trail Life Boys, like, it just goes on and on and on. Um, there are so many daytime activities in our area. Uh, I think that homeschoolers can also do sports at public schools where I live, but we haven't taken advantage of any of that. We just usually do outside stuff um, or daytime things because I don't like my nights to be busy. We eat dinner together every night as a family, and so I try to stay away from nighttime activities, and uh, so most of the stuff that we do falls during the daytime hours, but um, yeah, there's everything available to homeschoolers, whether it be through the school district or um, just, you know, outside sports programs. We have friends that do choir and speech and debate, like you mentioned, and all kinds of things. So, Yeah, I used to joke we were never homeschoolers, more so than homeschoolers. <laughs> uh, Bernita, did you have anything to add to the activities and sports? Yep, um, same thing, like partnering with your local public schools, always contact them you know, and let them know that you're homeschooling. My daughter did dance in her charter school. Um, she did that hybrid model where her dance classes came through them. Um, arts classes also, um, but also check into your lo like local Y's, right? The local Y has different sports in the summertime. Um, here in Detroit, we have PAL, which is the uh, Police Athletic League. So parents pay a little fee and they, can participate in the baseball or the football, whatever. So it's it's like so many opportunities. I think it's about parents doing the research in their community and finding out what's accessible. And Eric? Yeah, for the hybrid schools, it really depends on the, the culture and the taste of the school. So a lot of schools will offer a variety of sports or things like choir or debate or things like that. Um, one of the great aspects of these schools is that a lot of times it's it's do it yourself, right? Everything, I think that's healthy for society, right? If you wanna start a basketball team at the school, somebody's gotta just jump in and start it. Um, and then you can have it for that reason. 
Um, a lot of the schools will host dances or things like that. Um, in my survey research, I've actually found there's a significant number, some, I don't know what it is, some percentage of parents go to hybrid schools specifically because of extracurricular activities. So maybe they have a, a really high level tennis player um, that wants to put in so many hours of training during the week, but in a five day school, they don't have time. So they go to school two days a week and they spend a lot of time training on the off days. Or maybe they are a musician and they want, or an actor or something, and they wanna to go to auditions or do gigs. Um, and they, they just need to have every Friday off to be able to do that. Um, so that's kind of the reason that they come to the hybrid school. Eric Wern is Associate Professor of Education Economics at Kennesaw State University and Director of the Hybrid Schools Project. Amber Brown is the founder of Barefoot University. And Bernita Bradley is the founder of Engaged Detroit. Colleen Hronchik is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. The 2008 financial crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic greatly expanded the Federal Reserve's scope and power, but what limits that power? Where do we draw the line between fiscal and monetary policy? In a new volume from the Cato Institute, Populism and the Future of the Fed, contributors address these debates to improve your understanding of the complex relationship among politics, policy, and the rule of law. Populism and the Future of the Fed is available now from online stores nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.